This week, my guest is Cecil Bullard from the Institute for Automotive Business Excellence. Sit tight, because you don't want to miss it. Welcome to Ratchet & Wrench Radio, your podcast for strategies and inspiration for auto care success. I'm Chris Jones, host and editor at Ratchet & Wrench. And this week, I've got with me Cecil Bullard, all the way from the Institute for Automotive Business Excellence. If you know Cecil, you know he's a very passionate individual about the auto care industry. And so we spent about 45 minutes on this episode really breaking down the labor shortage. What does it mean? What does it mean for shops to get out of this? Yes, it's going to be a very long labor shortage. We know it's, it's been going on for a couple of decades, but Cecil outlines a few tips, tactics, and strategies that can really help shop owners dig their heels in and find ways to help themselves out of this. And so uh, without further ado, I'm going to bring you Cecil and let him kind of lay the groundwork for you and hope you enjoy. So Cecil, with regards to the technician shortage, where do we find the point of origin, like the position where it tipped from being plentiful to being more scarce? You know, I think it, I think it goes way, way back. And I think it's at the core, you know, my, my father, even myself, uh, when I was in, in school, you know, if you struggled to sit in a classroom, if you had a hard time, you know, listening to direct, you had ADHD, or maybe if you were dyslexic, they put you in automotive. So a lot of guys in the 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, maybe even early 90s, they went into these automotive programs because they weren't good at sitting in school. And uh, I think that when we went in the programs, we kind of felt like we were secondary citizens. And I think this kind of is kind of the core. You know, we can look back in the maybe even 10 or 15 years ago when we would run an ad and we would get 10, 15, 20 you know, potential techs that actually had some skill. And I think in the last, certainly pre-COVID, maybe a year or two pre-COVID, when we started running ads, we would get two or three, maybe guys that had some skill. And then we didn't have, and then we would get somebody that wanted to be a technician, but didn't really know what it was. You know, maybe they'd worked on their car, didn't really have tools, et cetera. Today, uh, I've got guys all over the country running ads and, and they're good ads. And it's hit and miss at best. In other words, you know, we might run an ad for three months and not get one qualified applicant for that ad. I, I think there is, um, if you look at what happened since COVID, there are some people out there that probably don't want to work or maybe they can't. Maybe they're still, they still have long COVID or, you know, whatever's going on. But I also think that there are people out there that could be technicians, but it's not, it's not the cool place to be. It's not where you're going to make the money. It's not, you know, uh, when you think about technicians, I, I talk to hundreds of shops, maybe thousands. And, and we, we work with a lot of different shops. And so we get to interview their staff and we get to interview the people. And then we also talk about, you know, what are you paying your technicians. Well, I would tell you that the average A tech, top top of the line tech, might be making somewhere between thirty and forty, maybe even fifty dollars now in certain parts of the country. And and that's not that's nothing to sneeze at. But it's not if if I get a degree in I don't know technology and I go work for Microsoft. I mean, I'm starting out at seventy five, eighty five thousand a year to start with no experience, just that 
you know, piece of paper in my hand. And I have the possibility of making $150,000, $200,000 plus stock options. Today, when a technician comes into our industry, and I, and, and I see this all the time, we're, we're starting this guy out at 18 bucks an hour, $22 an hour, but not because we want to or not because they really deserve that, but because that's all we can afford to pay. We, we you know, I, I can't, if I'm, a, if I'm a shop, most shops are not making the profit that they need to, okay? So most shops are making maybe 4% net profit. And I need to be making 15, 20, 25% net profit in my shop in order to really pay my staff. There was a survey done by AutoLeap recently and, and the average uh, of all the respondents, I don't know, it's a few thousand respondents to the survey and it was random. So it was done by a, a company that does surveys. So I don't know how to do it. The average labor rate was hundred bucks an hour. And so if you look at that, by the time, and by the way, that's a, a posted labor rate. That's not an effective labor rate. So that's not necessarily what I'm getting because I might be doing oil changes at 60 bucks an hour. I got some comebacks, you know, that I do for $0 an hour, et cetera. So if my posted rate's 100, I might be getting 89, 92. And then what can I afford to pay, uh, you know, a good technician? If, if, if I'm getting $92 an hour, really, as a coach and a consultant, I would tell you that you can afford to pay about 40% of your labor rate. So it puts you at 36 bucks an hour with a load. And that, that knocks me down to maybe $27, $28 an hour. And that's for my best tech. Well, if we want to attract people into the industry, not only do we have to start paying them to start, we also have to make it a cool place to be. When I got married, my wife's uh, dad and mom were college graduates. And one of uh, her brother was a college graduate. And I was just, quote unquote, a mechanic. And when, I, when she took me home to meet her parents, they were disappointed that she was going to marry a grease monkey, you know, a guy with grease under his fingernails. And, you know, how, how much money could he make? How, you know, what can he do for our daughter? I was really a second class citizen uh, for them for a long time until they really got to know me. And before they died, of course, you know, the, the relationship was really good. But when they found out that their daughter was going to marry this grease monkey, they were very disappointed. They literally told her, don't do this because this guy's never going to make any real money. Well, that same mentality is still out there. You know, if you listen to Mike Rowe, if you um, if you just if you just keep your ear to the wall, there's a mentality that, you know, being a mechanic is a bad thing. It's not a great thing. It's not a great job. You can't make great money. We have to make it cool. And the only way we can do that is by increasing what we pay and by advertising marketing to the kids and the parents and saying, wait a minute, you know, you can come in this industry and start out at 65, 70,000. We need to be paying these guys $25, $30 an hour to start. And we need to be paying our best technicians, you know, 50, 60, maybe even $70 an hour. You know, good technician is worth his weight in gold. You know, he's going to do 45000 for his shop in a month, of which they should have a net of, of 20%. So, you know, if we can pay these guys well, I think, and if we can do some marketing, I think we can start to stem the tide. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a wild idea. I'm sure you have more questions and feel free to jump in and because I'll just talk for an hour. <laughs> um, well, that's an interesting point because, you know, as I grew up, I grew up in the 90s and early 2000s and there was that big push to send everybody to a four-year school. 
go to a four-year yeah. college, go to a four-year college, become a nurse, become a doctor, become, you know, software engineer, become anything but a mechanic, an HVAC guy, a plumber, become anything but those things. And do you feel like that's where it tipped? Do you feel like that's where the shortage began probably as far back as the 90s, the 80s, or even- Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, and, and really- <clears throat> It began because we weren't sending people into the program. So if you look at the study that was recently done, um, we have like 58% of the people in our industry are over 55. Mm-hmm. So, and then you have this gap uh, and we only have 13% that are uh, under like 22. So you have this huge gap of nobody. They weren't coming in the industry. They weren't going to shop class. Uh, you know, parents were saying, no, no, we don't want you to do that. And even kids were saying, Holy crap. I mean, when I was, when I started out, you know, the, the, I don't want to tell you what the minimum wage was because it'll, it'll really date me, but, <laughs> but, you know, I, we were $22 an hour and I got half the labor rate and 11 bucks an hour was like amazing. And I was making good money from the beginning, but I had to buy tools. I spent $5,000 a year on tools for years. And, and, uh, you know, I heard today, I hurt my back. I hurt my knees. My hands hurt, you know, uh, 40 years later because of what I did for a living for 25 years, which was work on cars. Um, if, if society deems something as not as acceptable as something else, then obviously people are going to move into the thing that society deems a better place to be. I mean, if, if our society says, look, you got to go get a college degree, if you're going to be anybody, make any money, have any impact, be somebody then that's where a lot of people are going to go. You know, today, I think that the only guys that are really coming into the automotive industry are the people that actually just love cars. And it, it doesn't matter what they get paid. And it doesn't matter, you know, working conditions. I just love cars and I want to work on cars. But we're not getting that guy that doesn't really know what he wants to do, who could be a great technician if he was trained to be a great technician. He's not even thinking about it. He's going to go to college and get a social arts degree or something and then he's going to get out of college and not have a job we need to get these guys interested when they're young we need to get their parents to understand this is a great industry you know i i couldn't be a coach and a consultant with a pretty successful coaching and consulting company if i hadn't been a technician if i hadn't been a service advisor and a manager and an owner i wouldn't have the skill set to to be where i'm at today and i may I make some pretty good money. Uh, I also have a couple of college degrees. I went back to college in my in my late 30s uh, and got a couple of degrees. And the funny thing is, I don't really use anything from my degree in my day-to-day. I mean, certainly it's made me more of a reader. It, it, um, college taught me how to, how to do research, you know, et cetera. And, and actually, I think I'm a better writer because of it. But as far as my day-to-day operation in my business, it's all from the experience I have in the industry. It's not from anything I learned in college or I did in college. So this has been coming a long time. And the problem is there isn't an easy, simple, quick fix. Statistically, a couple of years ago, I'm talking to some of the guys in the industry. And, you know, I was told, like, we're bringing, I don't know, 75,000 new technicians into the industry every year. And that, and if we did that for three or four years and we kept the majority of those guys, then this thing would be over. We wouldn't have a tech shortage, but we don't keep the majority. We keep the minority because we don't start them out at a high enough pay rate to actually take care of their families themselves. 
I, I, I don't remember where I was. I think it was back in Massachusetts a couple weeks ago. And I drove by a McDonald's and they had a, a like $22 an hour starting out for flipping burgers, right? And in our industry, we're not even in many places, we're not even starting these guys out at 18, 20 bucks an hour. We just have to think differently. And the only way that we're going to do that is to, is to change the way we run our businesses so our businesses are more successful so that we can pay more. Right. One, of the, one of the things we really try to do in, in, at the Institute is, is help our business owners make more profits so they can share more with their employees. And uh, you know, if you're profitable and you're doing the right things in your business and your people are productive, assuming you know, they're doing you know, seven and a half, eight, eight and a half hours for an eight hour day and, and producing that work, you can afford to pay them more in a, in a shop that's productive than you can in a non-productive shop. Uh, you know, we, we also have an interesting thing, phenomenon that's going on today. You have um, a techs going out and maybe they're making $45, $46 an hour, but they're actually out in the marketplace going, who's going to pay me the most? And so you'll have a dealership or even an independent that's very successful. And they'll come in and go, look, we'll pay you 52 or 54 or 55. Um, and then you have these ATECs leaving, you know, Joe's garage because Joe can't just can't pay that much, you know, no matter what we do. I had uh, a washing machine break. And, it, you know, if anyone's listened to me, I've been in my classes, you've probably heard this story. I'm probably well qualified to fix my washing machine, although today I travel so much and, and I'm, I'm busy doing other things where I make my living. So I had my wife call the washing machine repair guy and he showed up. He's driving a, I don't know what it was, a, an S10. So you got, I mean, we're talking a 98, 97 S10. He's got a, a tool belt with, you know, a screwdriver and a, a DVOM, an electrical tester, you know, a couple of different tools, screwdriver, you know, not a toolbox full of stuff, right? And he comes in and, and he talks to me for about 15 minutes, just BS, you know, about the neighborhood because he lives, you know, two blocks away and charged me $79 to show up at my house, which happily I paid. Talked to me for 15 minutes, went over to the washing machine. It was leaking water, pulled four screws off the back of the washing machine, kind of pulled it out, took the thing away. And then there's the whole washing, the guts are all standing there. It's not like a car. Everything's available. He says, I know exactly what the problem is. They call it a transmission. It's a plastic piece that goes between the motor, the thing that turns the washing machine and the, bo and the bottom, you know, where the dr water drains. And it doesn't even um, bolt in or screw in. It's, the, it, it's, a, it's a plastic piece with some rub rubber gaskets and it clips in. He says, I got one in my truck. He goes out to his truck, grabs the thing, comes back, unclips the other one, clips this one in, clip, clip, you know, puts the, you know, the four screws back in, pushes the washing machine back, not leaking, everything's fine. And the bill was like uh, $232 or something, right? He was there for less than a half an hour total, talked to me for 15 minutes. The part was $17 and I got charged, you know, the rest was labor. So this guy was charging me $300 an hour as a washing machine repairman. Well, what do, you, what do you need to know? I'm not, not taking away from that, but you don't need to know as much as you need to know to work on today's cars. That's for sure to fix a washing machine. So, you know, and, and I paid the guy and I was happy to pay the guy because I didn't have to do it. I didn't have to go chase the part, you know, all that kind of thing. But here in our industry, if the average shop is charging a hundred bucks, how can we be competitive with, uh, you know, businesses that are, are able to pay people 
you know, 80,000, 100,000, 150,000, 200,000, if we keep charging $100 an hour. Um, I believe that every shop in the United States, there should not be a shop in the United States less than $200 an hour. And we still have shops that we see and we talk to them and they're like, oh, we're great. I talked to a guy the other day, it's $99 an hour. I have shops that are 230 in different parts of the country. I have a lot of shops in the 160 to 180 range. We still have shops that are under hundred bucks an hour in our industry. How do you pay for tools and equipment, education, uh, you know, scanners and, and knowledge and, and quality people? If you're charging $90 an hour, 95 bucks an hour, I don't know how you do it. If we don't get caught up on our value and who we are and what we should be charging. This technician shortage, where we're at right now, is going to seem like the good times because it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Now, there's that that serious gap from like 55 down where there just aren't a lot of people out there. My advice right now, I got this crazy idea. Let's every shop in the United States raise their live rate $20 an hour. Tomorrow, let's just do it. If 90%, 80%, even 70% of the shop did it, 20 bucks an hour, it could change our lives, frankly. I take $10 an hour and, and give it to my technician. My master tech goes from making, you know, 70, 80,000 to making 100 to 120, 130. My junior tech goes from making 30,000 a year to making 50 to 60. Um, and I take 10 bucks, I just put it in everybody's paychecks. Um, I still have $10 left. I take $5. And I build the benefit package that doesn't exist. You know, my best shops, they're charging 200, 190, 180. They have great benefit packages. They have medical and dental and, you know, IRA, 401k, paid days off, paid holidays. But there's a lot of shops out there. I was in a meeting last week, two of the shops. They didn't even pay for vacation. At the very least, I've always had paid vacations wherever I were, right? I mean, sometimes they didn't have medical. Sometimes they didn't have other stuff. But they had paid vacation. These shops, they weren't even paying for vacation. How, how do you compete with a, I don't know, Microsoft, a, a Google, a, a, an Amazon, if you don't have paid vacation, paid holidays and stuff like that? And then that brings up a good question. Do you feel like from an environmental standpoint, shops fall short for techs? And then from a compensation and benefit standpoint, they fall short for techs in terms of providing that value that they need to feel respected at their position? Yeah, I, th I think it's. I think that we fall short in in all areas. Now, not everybody, of course. A lot of my shops have they provide toolboxes and tools, and the shop is really clean and it's air conditioned and heated, and and they're paying really well. I mean, I have some shops that are paying their master techs one hundred fifty thousand a year or more. I have some shops that are paying their junior techs, you know, uh, eight, seventy, eighty thousand a year. They're the guys that are the most expensive. And by the way, the shops that are the busiest out of all the shops that I, I, I have are, are the shops that are the most expensive. And they're the ones that when they run an ad, someone comes in. They actually, I've got three shops right now. They're, they're probably top performing shops in the United States. They don't have a problem with technicians because they want they have people wanting to come work for them because the environment is so nice and the pay is so good and and certainly as an industry though we are we are hurting in both places uh I, where was i probably in the in massachusetts in that area it was uh i don't know 97 degrees and 97% humidity and the shop has a swamp cooler and that's it and that wasn't keeping up with the humidity i mean even walking in the shop myself without doing anything i start to sweat um how how do we expect our people to work in that environment when they could go get a job in a nice office, you know, have time off and paid holidays and all the other stuff and make more money. I, I don't know how 
we, so we're behind in compensation, we're behind in benefits, and we're behind in environment in the average shop in the United States. I'd say Canada too. We're going to put those guys in the same pile because the Canadian shops are just like us. We have a lot of Canadian clients and, you know, they're a lot like us uh, here in the United States. But there's that perception though. And, and it proves itself time and again, when you look at industry, uh, whether it's retail or in, or hospitality or anything that if you charge more money, people perceive you as being higher quality, better service and more premium. And so why wouldn't you, so why wouldn't you charge more money? Right? But that's, that's exactly right. right. That's just credence to your point that by charging less and being more, more positioning as a shop, that's a discount shop or a shop that isn't providing the, you know, providing a higher labor rate, you're, you're, you're undercutting yourself. You're hurting yourself because the public will pay what you ask for. It happens again. It happens in retail, happens in hospitalities. There was an interesting article uh, uh, recently. I can't even tell you what the magazine was, but it's one of the, coaches uh, who wrote kind of all the coaches telling you to raise your rates are going to screw you and your shop's going to end if you raise your rates. And, you know, I was like, Oh my God, first of all, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've been telling people to raise their rates because they have to, because we need to, because the industry is suffering because we haven't uh, for years. And, and I have been to classes and I, you know, I've said, okay, how many of you were here two years ago? And they'll raise their hand. Half the class will raise their hand and say, yeah, we saw you two years ago. Great. How many of you went home and raised your labor rate? And they'll all raise their hand. And then I'll go, okay, how many of you lost more than a couple of customers because you raised your labor rate? And no hands are up. None. It's it's about, first of all, you have to have good customer service. And, and you need to do that. And I think there's a lot of guys that, you know, they call around and they want to be competitive. And they think that they're really competing on dollars. When what they're really competing on is customer service and how you treat the customer and the experience experience they have and whether or not, you know, the, the trust that you build, you know, there's so many things that go into that mix and price is one of 15 and, mm-hmm. and price, there is a small percentage of the population that are price oriented and they're always going to be price driven, but that's not the guy you want for a customer, right? Cause he's always going to go to the cheapest place. And so there's no loyalty. They won't allow you to take care of their car, but they'll blame you when their car breaks down you know, when, when you, they wouldn't let you fix it and take care of it. So, you know, there is this thing like hotels. I, I have certain hotels I will not stay at. And, uh, I travel a lot. I'm in hotels half, half of the nights, you know, in the, in a year. And I I wouldn't tell you that I've never been disappointed by a higher priced hotel, but I would tell you that 99% of the time, I'm pretty happy with what I got. And when I've gone to the cheaper hotels, the few times that I've absolutely had to, I've always been disappointed. So, you know, there is this idea sometimes that what you charge creates value for your clients. And I I just tell people, you need to run your business so your business is successful. And whatever the cost is, you need to build that in. And then you need to help your clients understand why buying the product from you is better for them than buying it from anybody else, whether they're more expensive or less expensive. Yeah, no, I I fully agree with that. So I want to ask you, uh, Cecil, with regards to to shop owners, like, do you feel like there's a mindset where there's a fear of losing clients by raising your prices? And if so, how do you overcome that? Like, how does a shop owner who's afraid to raise their prices overcome that stigma? We, we've lived in fear in this industry our entire life. We, we, it's funny because as a coach, I've been doing this now more than 20 years and you go in the shop and you say, okay, you got to raise your rates. I mean, I, there's a guy losing $6,000 a month 
And you're like, look, you got to go up five bucks an hour at least. And he, I can't do that. I'll lose my customers. I mean, and he really feels that's going to happen. And yet he's going to go broke. So do you want to be broke because you chased away a few customers? Do you want to be broke because you didn't charge enough? Which broke do you want to be? And they, they truly fear losing their customers. And there are other things in our industry, which I kind of don't like. You know, where we have the price shopping online tools and because price is most customers do not go to the shop they go to because they're the cheapest shop in town. Most customers go to the shop they go to because it's convenient, because they know them, because they've had a good experience there, because they trust them, because their car was clean when they came out and you know, all of those things. There's so many things. And the other fear we have is that if we ask our employees to actually do their job correctly. In other words, come to work, you know, give me eight hours worth of work for the eight hours I'm going to pay you, that you'll lose your employees. And I cannot tell you how far from the truth that actually is. I mean, we've walked into shops that, you know, I, I could give you example after example. We've got guys that started out in the 80s, uh, $80 an hour, $90 an hour, who are now $140, $150. And, and they weeded a few clients out, but they added a ton more really good clients. And the people they weeded out of their business were the people who never let them make a living, who wouldn't fix their car. You know, this guy that comes in and changes his oil. And when, 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 you know, you tell him, look, your belts are falling off. He says, well, when they fall off, I'll, I'll bring the car in. Right. So I don't know if it's just human or it's the automotive industry, but we have a fear that if we get where we should be price wise, we're going to chase a bunch of our clients off. And, and my experience, you know, I ran a shop in 2006, 2009 in, in Mountain View, which is a wealthy place in California. And we were $158 an hour at the time. Time, and all the other shops around us were 100. There wasn't, in fact, there wasn't anybody over 100. There were 42 shops within a mile of ours. And we were the, the most expensive by far. By the way, we were also, we were the busiest. We were the most consistently busy. We had, you know, 99.7% positive customer feedback. And that business did fantastically for years and years and years, being an expensive business, you know, being a place where customers came in and they said, oh, Cecil, I trust you here. Take my keys. Tell me what I got to do. And, and they didn't go, well, I can get it cheaper, you know, $20 an hour cheaper somewhere else. I, I just don't think that the average customer that walks into the average shop today is is even knowledgeable enough to really be a price shopper. And, and they may call around, but they're not comfortable by what they hear by the cheapest guy in town. In fact, I would tell you, if you want to talk about price on the phone, uh, I would I would ask the customer, what's the lowest price you got? What's the highest price? And I would go right in the middle. And that's more likely going to guarantee me that that customer shows up. And I think we all know that whatever we sell, tell them on the phone is BS anyway, because we haven't seen the car. I mean, 90% of the time, whatever I'm telling you on the phone it is never really what happens because I don't have enough information to give you any you know, solid pricing. We, we've got to get over this fear of, of being in business. We, we actually have to get some more pride in what we, we do and who we are so that we say, I'm worth 200 bucks an hour. I'm worth $230 an hour. I did a, I built little calculators. I did a, a price calculator raising uh, rates from 1980 for a shop that was 72, $70 an hour in 1980, 3% every year. And, and if you did that every year, right now we would be about $238 an hour as a, as an industry, if you were $70 in 1980. And, and so, and where are we as an industry? Well, according to the last survey, we're a hundred bucks an hour, not in my clients, my clients, I would say average probably 165, 170, but 
if the industry averages a hundred, we're we're in more trouble than we thought we were in. Right. Yeah. No. And you know, we've talked about owners increasing the labor rates, being able to pass down some of that to the technicians, being able to improve the environment. These three ways as a way to attract new technicians in and to get qualified talent that you can keep. Talk a little bit about career path, you know, because I think that seems like a, a biggie. Like if I'm coming in as a technician, I want to know that there's somewhere for me to go that I'm not just going to be turning wrenches for the next 20, 30 years, but there's a path laid before me that'll keep me in place. And I, I will say that the younger generation, uh, they'll work their butts off if they see a path, if they see how they can get what they want. Yeah. The problem is that for most shops, we don't have a path for them. We don't mentor, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll bring a guy in. He's um, 19, 20. Uh, we bring him in at, at maybe 20 bucks an hour and we have him change oil for the next two years. And when he leaves, we go, what happened? Well, he didn't come to change oil. That's not what he wanted. He wanted to be a tech. You know, he wanted to work on other things. He wanted to grow. One of the, the things that helps attract good technicians is the part of the growth. Do you guys support training? You know, do you, do you go to the, the STX, WTI? You know, are you constantly training your people? Are you bringing, you know, top technical trainers into your industry for service advisors? You bring in people like the Institute in to help your service advisors be the best that they can be. Certainly when we have something and a plan for them to grow and become a master technician and make, you know, a good living, I think we attract more people. I think there's something else, though. I think that no matter what we do, if we don't create the image in the world, out in the United States, Canada, whatever, that being a technician is a good job, it's a good place to be, it has a real future, we're not going to get people in. So remember that 20 bucks an hour, we've already spent 10 on the tax, we spent five on on um, benefit packages. I'd like to take the other five and put it into a nonprofit organization that markets jobs in the industry as being, you know, high paying, good jobs, builds scholarship and scholarship funds, and then puts the the top technicians with the shops that support it. Uh, right now, a lot of programs out there in the, in the colleges and universities are sponsored not by individual shops or the independent industry. They're sponsored by dealerships, Toyota, Ford, Honda. And so they get the, they get their pick of the top guys because we're not sponsoring these programs. We're not making these programs happen. And so I'm saying take that 20 bucks and take five bucks of it and let's put it into a nonprofit to market, but also to create scholarships and, and build uh, mentorship programs with shops so that you can take a, a, you know, a guy who knows very little but wants to be good. And over the course of two to four years, turn them into a really good tech. But it has to be focused. You can't just say, you know, go out there and, and you know, maybe in, in, in six months, we'll have a break job that you can do. You know, we, we in my shop, we hired the, the cleanup guy, the guy that took customers home, Caitlin Chase Parts. He was always a guy that wanted to be a technician. So once we knew that he could work, then we would move him into our mentorship program that started out as a, you know, change in oil. And then within six months, he was doing other jobs. And within a year, he was now he's a, 
a B-level tech a year, year and a half, two years in, and maybe a master tech in four. They need that. They want that. The guys that are serious about this industry, you know, if you want to be a doctor, you understand not only are you going to go to eight years of college, but you're going to go to another eight years of school. And then you're actually going to do, as part of that, some kind of internship in, uh, I have an uncle who's a doctor. Uh, he spent a couple of years um, working at uh, in San Francisco at the, the hospital there uh, in the emergency room as part of his training uh, before he could even really start a real practice. Um, but he knew where he was going. He knew that when I get here, I can I can get this paid and I, I, I'm... People are going to respect me. I've got that PhD by my name and, and I'm going to make the kind of money I want, et cetera, et cetera. We, we, don't, we don't really have that path in the automotive industry. And there's some stuff going on. I mean, uh, um, WTI, CTI, which is uh, CarQuest Technical Industry, and some of the guys down in Colorado have put together a, a technician program uh, working with some of, the, some of the schools there, UTI and some of the other schools, uh, which I think is pretty good. But we have to mirror that or expand that all over the country so that we have lots of feeders uh, into our industry. And frankly, uh, students, kids, uh, young people that want to be in the industry and their parents have to say, that's a really great path. Uh, I want to support that. Yeah. And that's my next question for you is how can independent repair shops foster that in their own community? How can they develop these apprenticeships in their own community, these mentorships in their own community, or even engage with people in their community? What, what do you recommend they do maybe with at a high school level, a Votech level, or even a community college level to, to attract talent? Well, I think, first of all, you, you have to have a program within your business to mentor someone coming in. And that's not that's not just putting with an A tech. Um, that is, you're going to learn this, and then you're going to learn this, and once you check this off, you're going to learn this, and then you're going to go here and here and here. And that's you know, in in my company when I had my shops, we had a program where everyone that came in, whether you were an A tech or a you know a junior guy starting out, you had a mentor, and they walked you through a very specific series of things to check off. Do you know how to use a rack properly? Do you know how to use a AC machine? Do you know how to use a coolant flush machine? Can you use a scanner properly? You know, how to use a DVM, um, you know, and then the guy got checked off. And as a manager, I met with the person that was being mentored and the mentor to find out the progress they were making. And if there were any problems, how do we handle that? You know, how do we help them? So you got to have those things in your company. You need to start thinking uh, 10 years out, not six months out. And then you've got to get involved with the local colleges, the local high schools, um, wherever there's programs. You need to go volunteer to be on the board. You need to volunteer to, to start helping them understand what you need to learn. We've hired, I've hired a lot of guys out of these schools. And frankly, I would say there's two things you need to be successful in life at whatever job you're going to do. And one of them is, is education. You need knowledge. You got to know what you're talking about. But the second thing is experience. You need experience and you can gain knowledge by reading books and sitting in class, but you can't gain experience that way. You have to actually get your hands dirty. We need to get involved with schools. And then, you know, you, you talk to guys who have shops and they say, well, I got a guy from UTI or I got a guy from this school or that school. And he really sucked. He didn't know what to do. Well, of course he didn't. He hasn't worked on cars. You know, when I started, I was lucky. My dad, he was stuck with me. You know, he wasn't going to chase me off. And his partner was a really nice guy. And so for the first two, three years, they showed me all kinds of stuff. I mean, I had the best mentors in the world. And so I became a good tech. And we can't do it just by putting somebody in a bay and saying change oil. It's never going to work. 
And so if, if you don't think that the local college or the local, you know, uh, UTA, whatever the programs are, the high schools are putting guys out with what you need, why not bring those guys in for a, a mentorship in your shop while they're going to school? Get them some hands-on training. It'll also give you the chance to show them what's up and, and have them come work for you in your shop and be trained in the way that you want to do it. I would say too, that most shops, we don't have a plan. You know, if you go, if I go in and say, what's your business plan? Most shops, they don't have one. You know, they're just, the guy's working. He knows how to fix cars. He's hoping he charges enough that there's some money at the end. You need a business plan. And you also need a plan to take your, you know, this young person from where they are and give them the, the skill sets they need to be successful long-term. And then I have guys say, well, yeah. And then the guy just quits and goes somewhere else. And yeah, he might, he or she might, you know, but so what? It's the game. It's not just... It's not a it's not a short term six month thing. We have to be thinking, I don't know, 10, 20, maybe even 50 years out for our industry. And and we haven't done a good job of that to this point. You mentioned planning earlier. So how much of that change involves sitting down, looking at the numbers that you have to reach in order to hire the top tech, in order to hire the right service, right? In order to fully staff at the right and appropriate rates, along with having the proper labor rate, how much of that is sitting down and looking at, okay, well, we need X amount of cars per per week, per month, per year. Like how does a shop sit down and assess itself and say, okay, in order to get to where Cecil thinks that this is where I need to be as a shop and really function and thrive, where do I begin? Well, you you start with understanding your business as a financial model. You know, how, how does my business make money? And it's not fixing cars. I mean, obviously I have to fix cars and I have to do a good job of it or I'm not going to be in business long, but it's the pencil that will make you more money than the tools and creating efficiencies in your business. Um, you know, planning every shop, every business in the world should have a business plan. And that should happen. You know, we should be starting maybe next month to think about 2023 and start the plan for 2023. And if I understand that I have a technician in that bay and based on my labor rate and my parts to labor ratio, how many parts I sell for, you know, one hour parts, one hour labor, there's a number that says this is my business running efficient. And, and at the Institute, we have... Um, at wearetheinstitute.com. We have a lot of uh, uh, free classes, frankly, that will get you some of the, the stuff that you need. Um, and you got to understand your business in that sense. Then you got to sit down and consciously, okay, okay, this is what I want. And you have to have some understanding that you can actually build it. So you have some control over it. You know, ultimately, we don't have all the control because if COVID comes along and people can't work for three months, it's going to affect your business. There's nothing you can do. I mean, if the housing market crashes and there's no money to be lent out there, it's going to affect your business. But we can control, I don't know, 90% of what happens in our business if we understand that technician uh, needs to provide $45,000 a month out of that bay. That service advisor has to sell that $45,000. Then we need the processes, the systems to make sure that our shop is efficient so that work can be done in an efficient way. And that's not that's not a lot. For someone like myself, I mean, I would say that's really simple and it's really easy. Of course, I've done it not only in my own shop, but with thousands of clients, but it's not that that hard if you're if you're open and you're and you're willing but if you're if you're in there working you know from six in the morning seven in the morning till seven or eight at night trying to get that car done so you can put money in the bank you can't spend the time that you need to understand your business and you'll never get you know if we keep doing the same thing you keep banging your head against the wall do you think the wall is going to go down or do you think you're going to have a headache 
right? I mean, which, which is it going to be? Um, we need more business owners that can be business owners in this industry, as opposed to mechanics who own businesses. There's a quote by uh, Michael Gerber. I actually have it on my wall because it's my favorite quote. And it's the fatal assumption is if you understand the technical work of a business, you understand a business that does technical work. And just because you're not a fixed car, it doesn't mean you know how to run a, an automotive business well or correctly. And, and there's maybe more than one correct way. Frankly, there's there's, you know, a couple hundred coaches out there. And I'm sure that we're not all teaching the same things. And yet we all have some very successful shops. But figure out what your correct way is and, and move ahead. And that also means, you know, how do I pay my bills? I got to understand that my fixed expenses need to be a certain percentage of my income. So I've got to do a certain amount of income and that equals this many cars at this average repair work. You, you need to at least understand that in the in the simplest ways so you can start moving. And then as you learn some of that, other stuff will fall in place and your business will get better and better. For the shops who are doing well, you know, for the shops who've got the technicians and things are working out for them, is it smart? to continue your recruitment efforts, even when you have a stocked pond? Oh yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter if you're full. We're, we still want you running ads. We still want you recruiting. Um, I used to interview every month. I ran ads all the time. At the very least, you, you meet some cool people that when there's an opening, they want to come to work, work for you. We had a guy for two years come in like every four months and say, are you ready to hire me? You know, I mean, holy smokes, if you got guys like that, people like that on your list who've come to your shop and said, man, they got a plan. It's a great environment. I can get paid well. This could be a really good career. You'll never worry about having technicians. You'll always have people in you, you know, ready. So yeah, you got to keep it up. You got to do it all the time. All right. And so regarding the labor shortage, do you feel like we're at the tail end of that? Do you feel like we're still no. in the throat no. of that? Are we still going to continue to bleed numbers? It, we're going to bleed and we're going yeah. to bleed more because there's going to be this separation. You're going to have the ATEX and they're going to be out there demanding more and more because they know what they're worth. And then we don't have that middle ground. We have some new people coming in, but we don't even have a plan to take those new people and make them really good techs. Most shops don't have that plan. So it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, I actually, I would tell you of all the shops I work with, nine out of 10 of them could use a good technician tomorrow. And we actually have shops that I had a guy the the other day, uh, I worked with him in years, calls me up. He says, I'm about to close my business. I can't find any techs. What do I do, Cecil? Now, luckily, we found a tech and you know he's still around. But I've got guys that it's it's actually costing them money because they don't have a tech in that bay. And uh, and they can't, they run, they're running ads and they're, they're not getting anything. The only guy that comes in is a guy who changed his oil five years ago and thought it would be cool to work on cars. He No tools, no knowledge. And they're really not at that stage qualified to come into most of the shops that, that I would quote unquote work with. So no, we're, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, for us, it may get really bad. But I also think, you know, with the with the common age of the common shop owner, we're going to see a lot of guys leave the marketplace, meaning the businesses are going to shut down. So there'll actually be fewer shops and the good techs that are there will be able to spread out amongst fewer shops. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the guys won't have the out plan, you know, the exit plan from their business, which will allow them to you know, live comfortably. So no, we're, we're, we're not at the beginning of this, but it hasn't, it hasn't completely developed either. It's going to get worse unless we make some major changes today. And the plan is not, no matter what we do, we're two to five years out from really starting to build on that and bring new techs into our industry at the rate we really need to. 
if you can give me just a, a number, a figure, like a percentage even of the shops that you work with or if you've visited or that you've communicated with, how many of them are just a tech away from shutting their doors? Yeah, I would tell you of the shops that I work with, we're not in that shape. There's only one or two probably. Okay. And we work with a few hundred every year. In the industry, I would tell you it's probably five to 10% where the shops are actually being, and, and by the way, that would be, I got to close my doors. Of the number of shops that are being affected because they don't have that A-tech, that guy that can really get it done, it's probably 30% of the industry. It's not a small number. Okay. You know, you may not be going out of business because you have this guy, but I would also say that we're keeping some guys that we wouldn't keep because, and we're, we're allowing them to perform at a much lower level because we don't have that other guy around the corner that can come in. You know, I have a lot of shop owners like, I'm like, Hey, you need to do something. This tech's only putting out five hours a day. I can't do anything. Cecil, man, if I try to get him, then he's going to quit and I don't have anybody. So, you know, it's a, it's a serious problem in our industry. And I think it's really affecting our industry hugely. You know, the average productivity a couple of years ago was 72% instead of a hundred. That's, that's billions of dollars sleeping. I would tell you the typical shops probably losing somewhere between 140, $150,000 a year because of inefficiency in their business. Wow. So it's pretty, it's pretty substantial. So what's the silver lining then, see? So like where are shops to go from here? Well, the silver lining is if you figure it out and you do it right, sky's the limit. I mean, I have guys that four years ago were losing $80,000 a year and they're going to make half a million in a single shop this year. You know, so they're, and their techs are being paid 30, 40% more than they were when we started four years ago. I mean, I have a lot of those stories. So if you run it right, you know, I have a guy that's out buying shops. He's on number six, I think right now, and he's either building them or buying them. And we have guys with 17 shops and 12 shops. And we have, we have a lot of shop owners who really get it, who have the systems, the processes, the bits and pieces in place, and they're growing and they're eating up the parts of the industry that aren't doing it right, that can't stay because they can't make the profit they need. They can't pay what they need to for good people. So there is a huge silver lining. I think, and I, I've been predicting this for years, so I've been wrong, but I think we're at a kind of a corner in our industry where maybe over the next five years, we really do see 20 or 30% of the industry go away, but the 70% that stay are going to be much, much better off and, and more solid because they're going to run their businesses in a better and more uh, profitable way. And so the silver lining is if you if you know how to do it right and you do it right, this is a fantastic place to make a living. And, you know, I mean, I had three shops. I had never, I hadn't been to college. I was making really good money. It, you don't have to have a college degree to run a really good business in this industry. And there's, there's not that many places where you could actually say that. So there's a huge silver lining, but man, there's going to be a lot of pain for a lot of people while we get there. Yeah. So for shops who, who want to make the adjustment for shops that want the help, who are looking for the guidance, how do they reach out to you? Well, we, we are the Institute.com would be our, our website. Um, and then we have, you know, we have a, a podcast that we do. We have lots of uh, information. We have lots of classes that are no charge. You know, we have some, you know, how to, how to increase your average repair order, how to, you know, how to figure out what it costs to have a technician and figure your labor rate out. We have a lot of that at, at no charge. We are the Institute.com. They can certainly hit Cecil at 
we are the institute.com. That's my private personal email. I've had it for years. And then we'll follow up with them. And, and we're not a we're not a pressure driven. Once we get your name, we won't drive you crazy. I want the industry to do better. Uh, it's, it's in my DNA. My father was a shop owner. My grandfather worked on trucks. And we just we we have to pick a, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and move forward. Or we're gonna it's gonna be very painful for a lot of people. All right. Well, Cecil, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate all your insight on you know this how shops can improve themselves, how they can, you know, attract the right candidates, what we need to do to work on this shortage. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Glad to be here. And that's all for us today at Ratchet and Rinch Radio. May the rest of your day be the best of your day. And we'll see you back here next week on Ratchet and Rinch Radio.